Welcome to Growing Your Collaborative Practice, the marketing podcast for collaborative professionals. Your Growing Your Collaborative Practice host is Joran Jenkins. I'm known as your collaborative marketing coach, and I'm changing the way the world gets divorced. I'm the founder of Open Palm Law, a collaborative family law firm in Tampa, Florida, and the creator of Marketing Your Collaborative Practice Toolkit, a complete step-by-step guide to marketing your collaborative practice. To change the world, you have to reach the world, and I can help you learn to do that. This is my origin story, so we'll start at the very beginning. I've got my two interns here with me, by the way. They both are named Sasser, which is kind of a weird thing since they didn't know each other before they met me. Um, Austin, I met online at Starbucks. He was uh, handing out coffees at the Starbucks window, and when my my husband placed the order... Um, he came back over the, the little voice box. Apparently, he could see the car we were in. It was my husband's Tesla. And he said, okay, fine, drive up to the window. I'll trade you your coffee for your car. And my husband made a face like, who the hell does he think he is? And I pulled out a business card. We got to the window, and I go, are you a student? And he says, why, yes, I am. I said, are you interested in practicing law? He said, why, yes, I'm pre-law. I said, here's my card come to see me next week. He shows up in a coat and tie and I go, no, no, honey, you're hired. Uh, The only question is, do you want to be paid or not? And how many hours a week do you want to work? So that was Austin. And then during this COVID thing, we're all staying home alone. And I get a resume in in my email from a young lady whose name was Madison. Her last name was Sasser. And I'm like, what the heck? So I emailed her back. I said, here, take this Myers-Briggs. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, Austin happens to be an ENTJ. So am I. So we had that in common. Um, Madison writes back, well, by golly, I'm an ENTJ. I've never done this before. What do you think? And I said, I think you're hired. So that's how Madison and Austin came to work for me. And they're basically running my life now. So um, <laughs> so that's, that's bringing you totally up to date. Do we really have to talk about my origin now? <laughs> I think it'd be a great idea to start. Um, I'll introduce myself just so it's on the record. Good. Um, so I'm Austin. I am, as Joran introduced me, as a uh, senior at the University of Tampa, pre-law, uh, philosophy and communication ma- are my majors. and uh, we're Until recently. <laughs> <laughs> He's always changing them. I just never know. Yeah. Well, currently, there it is philosophy and communication and then two minors. Uh, but definitely pre-law track. We're joined with Madison, um, yes. not my wife, but definitely Madison. <laughs> Although our clients, our newer clients, sort of assume that, and mm-hmm. we have to correct them. No, Madison is... <laughs> I'm a senior at the University of South Florida. I'm majoring in political science, and I'm minoring in creative writing. Also 21. Yes. Let me tell you, these two kids are just awesome. I call Austin Awesome Austin, which is a mouthful. It's kind of hard to say, but we're still figuring out a nickname for Madison. What about Magnificent Madison? Yeah. <laughs> Marvelous Madison. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Certainly not Mad Dog Madison. I love Mad Dog. <laughs> so let's get into the origin. Where, uh, where are we going to start? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a this is a podcast about collaborative marketing, so I think it makes sense to um, talk about you know, a little bit about um, maybe how I ended up being collaborative and mm-hmm. how I ended up being your your collaborative marketing coach, because those are two 
kind of, I think they're interesting. Of course, everyone thinks their own story is interesting. But my, um, my parents were divorced when I was seven. And they had one of those typical courtroom divorces. Um, we didn't know any different back then. I, I'm, I'm 63 years old. I've been practicing law for 40 years. So um, it's been a long time. And um, when the divorce was done, in fact, I don't even know that the divorce was done. My mother loaded us four kids into the van and drove us 3,000 miles away. And um, I never saw my father again. And neither did my three younger sisters. So I kind of realized early on that I didn't want that to happen to other families. But I didn't really start in, um, in divorce work. I started in commercial litigation. And I, you know, I rent, went through the typical, I mean, I, I was not that typical. I went to Yale when I was 16 and graduated when I was 19. And then I went to Georgetown Law, started working in one of the big 10 law firms. At the time, it was a big 10 law firm. Um, didn't really like it so much. I felt like, you know, I was kind of anonymous and it was in Washington, D.C. So, you know, everyone was a lawyer or a legal secretary or a paralegal or a senator. Um, (laughs) and, uh, so I chose to apply for jobs in Florida and got a job with the state attorney, which was amazing. But I I had to take the bar right before Mm -hmm. I could start practicing so um, I went to work uh, sort of temporarily for a big corporation. They knew it was a six-month stint. I had 50 arbitration cases. They were all race, no, sex discrimination cases. I won 47 of them. And then I went to work for the state. I did that for three years, went to a boutique trial firm, went to a moderately-sized trial firm, went to teach law school. They, uh, Stetson Law uh, came to me and said, we really want you because you know trial work, so come work for us, teach, teach trial practice. So I did that for a couple of years, and I really missed practicing law. So I opened my own firm. I, it never even occurred to me to go to work for, I mean, I'd been in a small firm, a big firm, a, a medium-sized firm. I'd worked for the state. I'd worked for um, a law school. So I thought, okay, what what haven't I done? I started my own firm, and that's been 26 years ago. Wow. So how did you um, start? How did you initiate the process of creating your own oh, law Oh, you know, that's a, that's a great question, Austin, and it's not even on the list of questions. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, it's funny because I was, what, 32? I think, 32. I, I can't do the math. Now, 33, now guess, 32. we're talking about the 90s, before uh, before 90s? both Madison and I 90s. were born. Hang on, yeah, hang on. we were 99. Yeah, this is a yeah, while ago. Yeah, you're right, you're right. It was 93. <laughs> yeah. Yep, it was 93. Um, and I must have mentioned to somebody who said, well, you know what, you should call this guy because he opened his own firm recently, came from a big firm. He's a really smart guy. And so I called this guy I'd never met, um, and I said, I'm thinking about opening my own practice, and -and so-and-so said I ought to call you. Well, I learned that you reach out to people. It's so important to reach out, to create your own. If, If there's not a ready mentor in your life already, find one. Um, and people like to help people. They just do. So this guy had lunch with me, and he came with his, well, this was back in the day, right? He came with his address book, 
and he went through the address book and he said, okay, you need, and I'm not going to go through the whole list, but you, you need legal malpractice insurance, call these people. You need slip and fall insurance, call these people. You need, um, you need a business lawyer, call these people. You need a business plan because you need a checking account and you need a, a, um, uh, a line of credit. And so the banks will want some kind of business plan. Call the Bank of Tampa because they cater to legal professionals. Um, he just gave me a list of people to call. It was really amazing. And then on top of all that, he gave me some phone numbers of people who are looking for tenants to share space with. So he hooked me up with some other lawyers, small firm lawyers, and we shared space. And so I always had those people to ask questions of. I mean, it was truly, you know, I, uh, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am today that this man was willing to give me an hour and a half of his time and all that knowledge. And then at the end of the meal, he goes, first of all, he paid for lunch, <laughs> which I remember because, of course, I was prepared to pay for lunch because he was doing me the favor. Um, but he was prepared to pay for lunch because I was just opening my practice. And um, he was, I was just so grateful. And I've tried to pass that forward as often as I can, as often as I can. And I can certainly uh, comment on that. The mentorship qualities definitely mm -hmm. um, are, are a big aspect here in, in our positions. Mm -hmm. And so you made your career out of litigation. Mm. Oh, yeah. So what did you notice about litigation that's different from collaboration? Well, it, you know, it's funny you ask that because um, my, and, and you guys are going to hear some stories from me that you haven't heard. I know you think you've heard <laughs> it all, but not so. My mantra was always, I wanted to make new law. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make new law at least once a year. So unlike most trial lawyers, I also did a lot of appellate work. I wasn't an appellate specialist. I never styled myself as an expert appellate lawyer, but I've done over 50 appeals. And in at least 10 of them, I've made law, either um, statewide or nationally in a couple of cases. Um, that was my mantra. Have I succeeded in making new law every year? No. Uh, on average, probably every other year. Now, Understand that you're making new law if you have an appeal. If you're doing it in a trial court, it doesn't really count. So I don't count all the times because I don't know how many other trial courts have made that decision. You don't know because those are unreported decisions. But appellate decisions are reported so you can actually go to West and Lexus and see if mm -hmm. you actually have decided had, uh, something that was never decided before. Yeah, because what I find interesting is especially when clients call, and they say, yes, like, I have this problem. And it says, okay, you have a problem. What do you have to kind of support your claim? Like, do you have text messages? Do you have right. emails? Right. Like, what kind of track record do you have? And I feel like with collaboration, or I feel like with that, it's almost kind of like, you know, like, I know I should trust you, and I do trust you, but, like, I kind of need you to prove it because I need to prove it. So do you see with, like, collaboration that that could be a problem? Well, collaboration, it's not a question of um, – of, well, I don't know if it's a question of trusting your client. Um, it's always an issue mm -hmm. of trusting your client, but in collaboration, we're very transparent. And so, 
yeah, you have to trust your client to be transparent. And yes, the client has to trust you to understand them. One of the things that I do, and I think you guys know this, um, I tell stories about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not afraid to share personal stories with clients. And I know a lot of lawyers think that's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. I think it's crucial to good marketing because clients need to believe that you get them, that you understand them. And, you know, I've had many clients where I couldn't really place myself in Mm -hmm. their shoes. Um, But many, I could. I have type 1 diabetes. How did I get it? Well, quite frankly, it was caused by my own divorce, Mm -hmm. um, which was a courtroom divorce. Um, How how did that courtroom divorce shape? Now, I personally know that it shaped your, you know, um, desire to practice collaborative law. It's one of the factors that oh, know, true. influence your decision. True. So what, tell me why a courtroom divorce would have that type well, of... Well, you know, mine wasn't that horrible. Um, what's noteworthy to me is that I went to a lawyer and I said, and this was before I practiced uh, divorce work, I said, I, I need a divorce. And he said, fine, I'll file the petition. And it never occurred to me to say, wait, what? I, I, I have to go to court to get divorced? I didn't have to go to court to get married. Why do I have to go to court to get divorced? And today, in retrospect, after you know 26 years of practicing family law, I realized that you don't have to go to court to get divorced. I mean, you might have to go in your community to get that final judgment signed, but you don't have to slog through the courtroom drama mm-hmm. and and fight that war uh, necessarily. You, there are plenty of courtless approaches. And so that's, you know, that's how that story fil- fills in there. Now, I will tell you that ultimately, we, um, we negotiated that divorce out. The, the courtroom divorce that hit closest to me was my, my current husband spent 10 years in litigation after we got married. Um, he was already divorced and his ex-wife just couldn't let it go. And she represented herself. It's not that hard to represent yourself. And you guys know that because we help a lot of people do it. We, mm-hmm. we counsel them. We, you know, we sit in their corner and they come to us when they can't figure out what to do. Well, that's what she did for 10 years. Made my husband's life hell. I told him when we finally settled it, we finally figured out what was going on. And this is my collaborative epiphany the mediator came to us and said did you realize that your ex-wife said to my husband your ex-wife is crazy and my ex my husband i gotta get that straight god forbid he should hear me calling my my ex-husband um my husband said to her why didn't you know that when you were the judge because she actually was the judge at one point in his 14 years in court and um she said, you know, we only see a snapshot. We only, we only see, and she demonstrated this amazing, you know, she spread her arms wide and she said, here's your real story. And then she brought him in a little bit and said, and this is what your lawyer thinks is important and brought him in a little bit more. Here's what 
the lawyer uh, tells us. And then she brought him in a little bit more. And she goes, and this is what we think is important. And then she brought him in. Oh, and by the way, at some point, you know, this is what's hearsay and this is what's not. So this is what actually comes into the courtroom. And then she brought him in, you know, so that by now we're, we're looking at her index finger and her thumb holding up, you know, a little tiny mm-hmm. picture in front of us. That's the snapshot we remember that we take notes on that actually goes into the final judgment. So, you know, we don't see the whole big picture of your lives. We only see a snapshot. She said, I didn't realize, but she thinks that she shouldn't have to pay any child support at all. And that's crazy because of course she should. Well, I heard that and I thought, okay, now I know what her real goal, what her real interest is. We did not know. And once we realized that, we settled the case. That is my collaborative epiphany because now I understand why collaboration makes sense. We actually get the goals and interests of our clients and we help shape those too because they may be taking a position and they don't realize they're taking a position. Once we can explain to them that that's a position, it's not a true interest and get them to dive deep and figure out what the real interest is, now we can negotiate. I've been in the room when you tell those stories, especially your own divorce, and I've seen the way that the clients respond because it's like it's like a shift in the room where they're like, oh my goodness, somebody's finally hearing me. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And so you think that they, yeah, they, they, they understand that I truly do get them. Now, sometimes, um, you know, we had a client recently, you know this, mm-hmm. who has a child on life support. I can't possibly know what that feels like. I have mm-hmm. a child. She's fine. She lives in Argentina, which doesn't make me feel great. But um, <laughs> but I don't have a child on life support. But I've had enough trauma in my life. I have a sister who has a head injury and who can't practice medicine, even though she has a license because of her head injury. Um, you know, I've had enough traumas in my life. And those stories come out as we talk to clients. And we get their real stories that I appreciate that that you do agree with me. They, I think they do connect with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's those personal stories that help them um, trust us. Right? And I think understanding the trauma is important because when we learn to break it down, we do get what they actually want. And I think that's what separates you from a lot of other lawyers is you're like, okay, you want this. This is how we go about it. You may or may not get it. Yeah. But do you want to spend the money? Yeah. Yeah. And I think most lawyers aren't willing to kind of put that out there. Yeah, I think that's true. But when I tell a client the um, the she just didn't want to pay child support story, that really connects a lot of them to, okay, so what is my real interest here? And they, you know, when we ask them questions that they would otherwise think were not really important to their process, mm-hmm. now they understand why we're asking those questions. And so they really try to answer them. Now, you know, understood that in our collaborative version of the process, we have facilitators who do a lot of that hard work. Um, it's not the lawyers necessarily who do that, but but we, to some degree, we do. I quite often will meet with both of the clients um, to do that dual process consult that we we do because that's one way to make sure that you do get them to buy into the collaborative process. If both of them do, you obviously they both got to buy in, or you don't have a a process to agree on, and then they're they're going to court whether they like it or not. But during that dual process consult, to a large degree, we talk about uh, you know goals and interests. 
It's interesting what the facilitators pick up on that like we wouldn't pick up on. Right. Because I was reading a comment that says, I notice if one wears wedding ring and one doesn't. Right. And it's just like, it's such a telling thing about the relationship. Like, yes, one person accepts that it's over and the other one may not. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And that in itself is one of the best um, parts of the collaborative process is having all of those different professionals from different backgrounds who each have their own unique situation and story and can provide that through counsel, right. advocacy, advice, mm-hmm. whatever role they play. Right. And it doesn't have to be just a financial role for a financial professional. Right. It can be a mental and right. emotional aid as well for that for that, for that couple many of the um the professionals that i work with to some degree are my proteges because i've helped them understand the marketing concepts that they need to employ obviously one of my favorite mantras these days is your marketing is my marketing because you know if you're a collaborative person actually even if you're collaborative in seattle you bring in a case i may get a case because of that um, I remember at one point I had seven cases where the clients were in L.A. What the heck? I'm in Tampa, Florida. We couldn't figure They weren't connected. They didn't appear to be related. But somehow I had seven clients who either originally lived in L.A. and were moving here during the process or were moving back to L.A. It was just a very strange thing. I've gotten referrals from people I've I don't know but collaborative professionals in Seattle Washington which you know is about as far from here almost almost Alaska would be further but I've I've taken the flight I I think it's a pretty long flight yeah so I have a question so as you practice law just like as a trial lawyer you may work with other professionals but maybe not as often and maybe the relationship is different true so how is that relationship different with collaborative and how do you build those relationships with other professionals? You know, it's funny because um, I'm one of those trial lawyers who's made great friends in the trial process. So I have a very close friend who lives in, uh, he lives in Boca now. Uh, he lived in Aventura when we met. I represented the wife. He represented the husband. The two clients despised each other. It was the, the, one of those divorces from hell. But Cliff and I became great friends, and Cliff subsequently represented my husband during some of that 10 years of hell he went through. Um, my tenant right now, you know Beth Reinecke, mm-hmm. who lives across the hallway. Well, she doesn't live there, but you know she's right across the hallway. Um, she and I met on a case. I represented one, she represented the other. They didn't like each other much. Beth and I got along gangbusters. So, you know, uh, but you raise a good point because one of the reasons that the American Inns of Court has made such a mark in the professionalism practice uh, in the last, how long has it been, 30 years, Um, 30, 40 years, has been because professionalism, the perception is that professionalism and ethics and civility have declined in our legal profession. And so the ends of court were created to address that. And as you guys know, I've been, um, I've been everything you can be in the ends of court uh, um, 
structure. You know, I've been, uh, I started in of court myself. I helped start a bunch of others. I taught organizing and, um, and uh, running, administering an in of court. Then I became one of the trustees on the board of trustees. I created the Bencher magazine. Um, and so, you know, I took a lot of that from uh, a lot of my focus on professionalism and ethics from there and that's another reason I think why collaboration really appealed to me because you don't start off assuming that you're going to be enemies like you do with trial lawyers. Um, trial lawyers have a hard time these days breaking bread after they've been to court. They're mean to each other. They're nasty. They send nasty emails. We see these complaints all the time when you know we're representing when we're working on those bar committees. Um, that doesn't happen in collaboration. We we support each other. We had a um, collaboration go belly up recently where uh, I think at least one of the two spouses was suffering from some form of mental illness. Could have been situational because actually this is the client who has the child on life support, one of the children on life support, and the other two are compromised as well. Um, and uh, the pro- process went belly up and the client blamed me and I was horrified to think that something I had done and I called the other professionals and we debriefed and she had said the same thing to each of them Um, not that I was to blame that each of them were to blame um, which is how we finally decided that there's some form of uh, mental illness there so your team supports you it supports the spouses in the process supports the clients it it could be a paternity case right could be a partnership uh breakup the team supports the process and the communication and the conversation to try and get uh get the folks to a place where they can resolve their differences whatever they may be so how do you build the team among different professions so because lawyers are used to working with lawyers so how do lawyers get used to working with mental health, with financial experts? Well, they talk about that paradigm shift thing. And and it's true that all of the professionals make a paradigm shift. The lawyers, you know, we're still advocates, but we're not white knights on our, we're not knights on our white horses. We're um, much more counselors, uh, much more, um, you know, uh, helping our client uh, work through the process and communicate than speaking for the client. Now, sometimes we have to speak for the client because the client may be unable to voice his or her concerns. Um, But in a way, that's still being the counsel for the client. Um, the, The mental health professional is not so much a counselor as a leader. The mental health professional on the Florida teams is the facilitator. So is the financial. The financial is, again, a facilitator. Um, not so much an expert um, making his own opinion decisions about what's right and what's wrong, but someone who's counseling the clients about what's there and what can be done with it, what can, how it can be maximized to benefit the family. So we each have to make that paradigm shift, and the lawyers become teammates, so it's totally weird. Mm-hmm. Um, we even have trouble figuring out what to call each other. I, it's not co-counsel because co-counsel are two lawyers working for the same client in a trial case. But we think of ourselves as maybe 
uh, teammates or co-collaborative counsel, right? So pretend I'm a lawyer and I pass the bar and I want to make the <laughs> that's paradigm not a, shift. That's not a horrible leap there. <laughs> and I want to make that paradigm shift. So how do I go about making those relationships with mental health professionals and financial like professionals? Well, now you're, now you're uh, backing into marketing, if you will, because mm-hmm. there's so much... You know, I have this idea that um, that marketing is a five-step process. It's the five P's, five fortes of marketing. It's pitch, publish, present, profile, and partner. Pitch will get you to partner. You have to work through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, but pitch would include things like joining uh, uh, cultural groups, business groups, um, religious groups, um, groups that appeal to you personally for one reason or another, uh, practice groups, collaborative practice groups. You join those groups because those are groups of people that you can network with. The practice group is mental health people and financial people and legal people. Um, and actually also often vocational evaluators and other experts, realtors, um, other people who might be um, collaborating in in a collaborative divorce process so you meet those people that way and then you do the whole pitch thing that I talk about when I'm when I'm teaching pitch okay so that's interesting so part of that is joining your community and like putting yourself out there yep okay so how did you start your first collaborative case because you made that shift well it's funny because I actually I did two cases in 2002 and we were not uh, interdisciplinary at that time. So here in Florida, I had another lawyer I knew who was interested in trying it. And we did two cases. They were successful. Um, I will be honest, as I always am, <laughs> there was no magic. It was, it was a process. It worked. The clients wanted it to work. They made it work. Um, we got it done. And I had no epiphany. I'm like, okay, this works. It's it's a good idea. They spent less money, so not good for me, um, but good for my client. And so in theory, my client, and for me, it's true, my client's best interests come first. So they were happy. I was happy. Um, people weren't doing it, so I didn't do it. It wasn't until 2009 that uh, I heard that there was a training So I went and got trained in the interdisciplinary approach, which means including facilitators, including financial experts. Um, And I thought, oh, I get it. This makes sense. And then, and by the way, we had settled my husband's case by then. And so when they talked about goals and interests, I had that, the two came together and I Mm -hmm. had that epiphany in that training. So in 2009, I started focusing. Um, and truly uh, trying to get those cases. Now, when I say trying to get those cases, I just told people I'm collaborative. <laughs> and they didn't <laughs> Which, know what that meant. Yeah, it's not a real good pitch. It doesn't, you know, I tell people today, uh, not today, I don't do it anymore, but I used to say I'm a lawyer. And people go, oh, that's interesting. And they change the subject because it's not interesting. <laughs> it really, it, it doesn't tell people anything much. Um, it may tell them what kind of personality I am because lawyers tend to be, we all know this. Um, but it wasn't until 2013 
that I realized that if I wanted to market this, I actually needed to market it. Now, I'll tell you, my marketing idea before 2013 was to call another lawyer and say, you haven't sent me a case lately. And I'd get a case. It worked. Um, but when you call another lawyer and he doesn't know that you do collaborative doors or even what that means, now you've got a problem. Um, I remember the ABA Law Journal did an article on me in 1993, 1994, that talked about my idea of marketing was just to call the other lawyers. And some year in there, my biggest case came in because I ran into a lawyer that I knew in a restaurant setting and I gave him a hug because I was so glad to see him. We had dated before I got married. And, um, and I said, you haven't sent me a case lately. And he said, oh, my God, I know the perfect case. Oh, my God, when I get back to the office, I want you to fax me your resume, back when we did faxes, fax me your resume because I think this would be perfect. And that was my biggest case that year. That was a legal mal case. I was still doing legal mal work. Um, but, you know, that doesn't work if you don't know your pitch. Back then, my pitch was, I'm a trial lawyer, and I do legal malpractice. And other lawyers got that. Um, I had to relearn pitch. So I started learning how to market, and I realized I really needed to have a plan. So that's what I did. So I want to go back before you had a plan. And <laughs> so you were working with this other lawyer, and you guys were like, okay, we want to try this. Was it more of like an informal agreement? Yeah, I suppose. I mean... It, are you are you thinking collaborative or right the first collaborative? So case. in two thousand two, we had a participation agreement because there was one. You know, we got it from another community. I don't remember where it came from, uh, but that's the definition of collaborative. Mm -hmm. Collaborative, you have to have three things: written agreement, two lawyers sign that they won't go to court uh, during the collaboration. It, it doesn't count. If you go to court, if the, one of the clients goes to court, then it's no longer collaborative. They've chosen to go to court. They have to hire new lawyers. So that's the definition. So you have to have a signed agreement. So yes, we had a signed agreement. But like to agree to do collaborative, like you guys were kind of like both interested at the same time or yeah. what? Yeah. Okay. So you didn't have yeah, to pitch to him. He was already you're, sold. You're going way back 2002. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. as I recall, there was a small cadre of lawyers that we talked about this and thought, this is a really good idea. Let's try it. Um, and so, you know, we tried two cases, um, this guy, Stuart Umberger and I, and then nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, it, the problem is that collaborative professionals sit in their offices and wait for someone to come knocking on their door. And I remember the first time that actually actually happened for me. It was like fireworks went off in my office. Um, somebody actually found me because of my marketing on Facebook. He was a lawyer. He did his homework because now there's stuff, because so many of us have learned to, to start marketing. So there's stuff out there on collaborative divorce. If you, um, if you Google... Uh, you know, you sensitize your Google to look for collaborative, you'll find stuff every day. Someone's posting about collaborative practice, the collaborative process. Um, so it's out there. And this guy was a lawyer. So he was smart enough to know that he wanted to do his research. He was smart enough to know he didn't want to go to court. He was smart enough to know that that was going to cost him a bundle if he had to do that. 
And so he looked for a collaborative lawyer. He walked in the office. I thought he was here for a tour because I'd practiced law with him 20 years before. And I thought, you know, what was funny is that I would have people stop at the office and come in to say hi. But what was happening was they'd parked their cars in my parking lot and wanted to go down to the five guys and they didn't want to get towed. So they would say hi and then they would go down to five guys. But that's not why. He, and I thought that's what he was doing. That's not why he was here. He, I started to give him the tour because my office is, is very user-friendly and I'm very proud of it. And he stopped me and he said, no, no, I figured that you had seen me on Facebook um, because I'm getting divorced and I want a collaborative divorce. And I've, I had not seen him on Facebook. It just happened. And uh, so he was... Uh, one of my first, he was the first time that someone actually knocked on the door and said, I want a collaborative divorce. Now, you guys see that um, occasionally now. It's not every day, but it's occasional. And sometimes what you see is someone says they want a collaborative divorce and they don't know what they're talking about, but they're starting to hear the words. And so that gives us the entree to introduce them to the concept. Well, I'm going to introduce them to the concept if they say I want a divorce because that's my first consult. It's always the process consult. I don't get into legal advice the first time I meet someone because I don't know if I'm going to be a mediator, a collaborator, or a trial lawyer. So I have to give them those options before they get any legal advice. No, we're running a bit out of time on this one episode, but um, as far as growing your collaborative practice and the origins, and when we reflect back, what is the biggest change that you see from when you started practicing collaborative law to now? I actually have people calling me and saying, I know I need a marketing plan. Um, I've, I've, I've seen what you've done. What's the best way for me to approach putting together my own marketing plan. And we talk about the toolkit. We talk about the coaching. We talk about the masterminds. We talk about the workshops. All of those things, by the way, will be in the description below this podcast. You can go check those out. Um. So the biggest difference is that you see people wanting to start off with marketing from the beginning. Is that? You know, I don't know that that's true. Um, uh, keep in mind, I think that, um, number one, students are learning about marketing in, uh, sorry, sorry, that's not true. They're learning about collaboration in law school now. There are enough of us out there that the law schools are starting to pick up on it. So yes, those young people just now are starting to graduate with the idea that they may not ever go to court. Those are the people who in, uh, in, earlier times might have become a real estate lawyer, a transactional lawyer of some kind, an estate planning lawyer, because um, they were never going to go to court anyway. But now they see uh, the option of doing collaboration, collaborative divorces, collaborative um, uh, probate, you know, collaborative partnership disputes. Um, and so they're seeing that opportunity. And those young people uh, understand they're starting to come out of school realizing that marketing is a, something that they need to focus on. And then we have all the way at the other end 
the older lawyers who've been going to court for years and years and years, and they're just tired of it. They're tired of seeing the pain and suffering, and they've seen the better way to divorce, and that's why they want to do the collaborative instead of the courtroom. And they know they need to market because I've been telling them that for a while now. So if you were a lawyer that was looking to start collaborative that hasn't already, what would be the first like piece of advice that you would offer them? Uh, find a mentor, pick their brains about how to open your own practice. You won't find uh, a lot of firms that practice just family law. There are some. And you won't find a lot of firms, there are even less, who practice collaborative family law. So chances are very good that you're going to be a solo practitioner. Um, And if you're going to practice collaboratively, you need to find yourself a mentor. So final question of the day. What's next for Joran Jenkins? Oh, my gosh. I don't have a clue. You know, the world is my oyster as as they used to say i mean I, every time i turn around there's opportunity there's there are new ideas out there i i just never know I, this podcast is a brand new opportunity for me i'm very excited about it um, i love teaching i loved teaching law school and some of those students that i taught 25 years ago are still in touch with me they're still referring me business um even though they're all over the state of florida at the very least Um, so, you know, the problem with me is that I like to do too many different things. So I like teaching. I like teaching marketing more than anything. I like collaborating. I can't see me ever not collaborating. I can see me, uh, passing my practice on to someone else, but still collaborating, um, using other people's, uh, conference rooms and, you know, because uh, I mentor collaborative teams now. I mean, that's a funny thing. Nobody thought of doing that, but I do. And I can mentor across state lines. I've been asked for my, my advice by multiple teams now to help them get over some kind of hump. Um, when you do enough collaborating, that's what happens. So, yeah, the world is my oyster. And during COVID, we had a great phrase that, when life gives you lemons, you gotta make lemonade. That's and very true. It's mm-hmm. certainly the opportunity now for collaborative professionals to really take in what this podcast is is going to share. Right. The, for free. Right. The tips, the trade secrets, everything that you need to know to grow your collaborative practice, we'll be discussing. And with that, we're out of time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Growing Your Collaborative Practice podcast, please take a second to leave a review and a rating on your preferred listening app. I'd really appreciate that. If you have any questions or comments or would like more information on my books, my webinars, my masterclasses, my toolkit, or my coaching services, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at joran at joranjenkins.com or you can visit my website at joranjenkins.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.